You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks, along with Rob Rang. Hope everyone had a memorable Memorial Day weekend. This episode coming your way, courtesy of Built Bar, the delicious protein bar with less sugar and less calories. Get $10 off your first box by using the code Locked On at BuiltBar.com. And this week only, you can get an additional $5 off every box of bars. And they have four new flavors, peanut butter, banana, pineapple upside down cake, coconut pecan pie, and of course, blueberry lemon. You can add that on top of your $10 discount with the code Locked On at BuiltBar.com. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. The NFL reportedly has set its sights on the potential for off-season on-field minicamps to happen as early as mid-June, though obstacles still remain. This report coming from Charles Robinson of Yahoo Sports, speaking with multiple sources today. I've had a chance to get some insight on this as well, Rob. It certainly looks like the NFL is trying to find a way to escalate this process so that maybe, just maybe, there can be on-field work before training camp arrives the end of July. I'm going to be on the side of caution here, though. I just don't see any way that this is going to come to fruition. I give the NFL a lot of credit for being ambitious. And, you know, at the end of the day, right now, I think the main goal should be getting the players on the field at the end of July for training camp. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I give the NFL some credit because I think that they're trying to create kind of a target date to get everybody kind of on the same page. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think that it's very important to note that uh, the, the NFLPA president, J.C. Treader, uh, you know, thought that, that he needed to announce via Twitter um, that, you know, basically uh, telling the, the rest of the NFL players um, that the union has not agreed to any reopening plan yet, that everything is, uh, just to, to read his exact tweet, any reports about coming back to work are hypothetical. You will hear from the NFLPA when there are new developments. So I agree with you, Corbin. I, again, I, I think that the NFL deserves some, some credit um, for, for giving a target dates for so everybody can kind of get themselves organized. But at this point, that's all it is, um, is we're all kind of dealing with uh, the, you know, just the, you know, we don't know what's going to happen next. And, and so I think that it, it is critical um, to, to continue to kind of work through this process being as slow and as calculating as you possibly can. Last week, the NFL started to let teams reopen facilities for non-coach, non-player personnel. Now, rehabbing players can go to the facility if they're trying to work back from an injury. Obviously, that's the one exception, but not every team can reopen yet, and the Seahawks are included in this group because every state has different rules right now and different restrictions in regard to stay-at-home rules. And the state of Washington, while there are places like Spokane County that now are in Phase 2 are starting to progress forward, King County, where Seattle's located, is still in Phase 1. And from what I was hearing today, they're still concerned there are too many new cases by day to move it into phase two just yet. It sounds like that won't happen till the middle of June at the earliest. And so you've got Washington, you've got California. There are a number of other states that have NFL teams that this could be an issue for. 
But Washington's really been one of the more conservative ones throughout this entire process. I don't think Jay Inslee is going to be rushing an NFL team back into business. We just saw today New Jersey is allowing professional sports teams to get back to work. New York has allowed it. California, there's been some discussion about sometime next month allowing that. Maybe Washington ends up falling in line there, but I don't think it's any guarantee based on the way that Jay Inslee has handled this, and and I'm not calling him out. I think he's done a really good job for the most part with a situation where no matter what he decided to do, there were going to be people that were angry. But I just am not sold on him deciding, oh, I'm just going to scrap what we've done at this point so that the Seahawks and the Mariners and our pro sports teams can get back on the field. Not saying it couldn't happen by July when training camp gets here, but I just think it's a little bit too optimistic right now on the league's part. If they're really all about equity and making sure all these teams get on the field at the same time and that teams aren't disadvantaged in this process, if that's really the game plan, I just find it hard to believe we're going to see players on the field. I think even if they're given clearance, from what I was told from a couple of sources today, most teams aren't even going to be planning to take advantage of that. They don't want to get on the field until training camp for safety reasons. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. I, I think that the NFL, again, deserves some credit for, for giving a target date. But I, I think that it's you're going to see a lot of teams um, that are going to make their own individual decisions. Now, a big part of that, of course, is, is just the, the the aggression of the head coach or the general manager. But as you said, Corbin, with, with, with the Seahawks specifically and, and Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who is taking a much more cautious approach um, you know, to the, in response to the COVID-19, then, then I think that that puts the Seahawks in, in a difficult position in that regard. And I, I thought that was interesting that you mentioned with, with Spokane County, uh, you know, just because, of course, longtime Seahawks fans will, will remember when the, the Seahawks used to go to Eastern Washington University in Cheney, Washington, which is in Spokane County, um, and, and hold their training camps there. And so I wonder if the Seahawks may be considering the possibility of trying to hold uh, either team practices or actual training camp or whatever they have to in different locations outside of King County. That may be something that they're forced to do but ultimately the most important thing is the Seahawks and everybody else of course have to try to to just stay healthy and while everybody is eager for NFL football um, I think at the same time the the, the smart uh, approach is going to be just like as you said that the Jay Inslee has done for most of the people in the state of Washington just trying to stay healthy stay home as much as possible and if the if it works out that that we can get back to football then that much better. I'm glad you mentioned Cheney because I actually wrote an article earlier today related to this, kind of discussing where the Seahawks could go if King County is not opened up enough or they're not given clearance, they're not given the green light to return to practice at their own facility. I certainly think returning to Eastern Washington could be on the table. They might even look outside of state too, and and there are some things from an optics standpoint that might not necessarily look good if an NFL team goes to a different state. But at the same time, that might be the best way for them to be able to get on the field safely for training camp. I would think if they were going to move with the way things are going in the state of Washington, almost the entire eastern side now is in phase two. I think if there's going to be a change of location for practices, Cheney makes a ton of sense, as you mentioned, with Spokane already being in Phase 2 here. By June, early July, might be in Phase 3. 
So that might be the best opportunity for them to get on the field. Just so many moving parts. Again, a lot of obstacles remain. I think there is a reason for optimism. It's warranted. I think the chances of the season starting on time look much better than they did even three or four weeks ago. But I think trying to push the issue too much, getting these guys back on the field mid to late June to do practice work, that's probably looking at what's happened the last few days and, and getting a little bit too much optimism out of it. But we'll have to wait and see. This is a situation that's in flux. Like you said, we don't know how things are going to play out. Maybe these guys will be on the field in three or four weeks and everything's going to be okay. But I would hesitate to make a prediction that's going to be what happens. When we come back, we're going to continue our two weeks of Seahawks what-if scenarios. We're going to look back at how one unfortunate injury might have cost the Seahawks a chance to win a Super Bowl one year earlier. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking quality-tasting protein bars without crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar comes in 16 amazing flavors. My personal favorite is the peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein and just 3 grams of sugar and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first one, I won't go without it before hitting my squat rack or going for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, nut and gluten free, soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste associated with most protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and check out all their flavor options. You can build your own custom box and new flavors will be coming out May 10th. Try this delicious product for yourself and change your exercise game by using promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. Later in the show, we're going to take a look at Seattle's current group of receivers heading into the 2020 season, how the depth chart is shaking out, are there any sleepers to keep an eye on, and of course, a look at some of the new rookies that have been added to the roster. Time to get in our Seahawks colored DeLorean, though, Rob. We need to go back in time. We're just going back eight years, so not that long ago, Doc Brown would be laughing at us. But Seattle entered 2012 as kind of a mystery team of sorts. They'd won five of their last nine games in 2011 to rally to a 7-9 finish. They had a young core, especially on defense. We talked about this a few weeks ago. K.J. Wright was going to be entering his second season. Richard Sherman, they still had Brandon Browner there. Bobby Wagner was drafted in that draft. Then they brought in Russell Wilson in the third round, Bruce Irvin in the first round. They had a lot of good young defensive players. They had a young quarterback they were excited about, but they also signed Matt Flynn, who was supposed to be the starter going into that season. And then Russell Wilson beats him out for the starting job. And it didn't look like this was going to be a playoff team early. They started 6-5, and five, and then they had that loss in Miami that really put them on the brink of not being a playoff team. I think it was still an encouraging season with a rookie quarterback, but... To see what they did over the next month and a half really told you this team was going to be a threat for years to come. Yeah, they just absolutely caught fire, you know, and the way that Russell Wilson was playing, the way that Chris Clemens was was tearing up things on the defensive side of the ball for the Seahawks being there, uh, you know, putting up the, the best numbers of his very productive uh, career as a, as a pass rusher. Uh, the Seahawks were the team that, that nobody wanted to face. And of course, uh, they, they they got into the playoffs. They, they, they went, to, it was such a, a great matchup, Russell Wilson going against Robert 
Everett Griffin III, uh, obviously the 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 the, the much valued uh, you know quarterback who was selected so much earlier than, than Wilson was as a third round selection. To have that type of uh, of matchup between the rookie quarterbacks in, in the first round of, of the playoffs, that we really got to see uh, you know one player in, in Russell Wilson who took advantage of that moment and became an absolute superstar. And unfortunately for Robert Griffin and the Washington Redskins, we saw the exact opposite happen for their franchise signal caller. This game really changed the fates for both franchises. Obviously a much bigger deal for the Redskins having their franchise quarterback, their rookie and Robert Griffin III have his knee buckle on that grass in Washington. Again, we've talked about this so many times. I don't know if it was actually grass or if it was just dirt that was painted green, but Nonetheless, players had a really hard time keeping their footing. A bunch of players got hurt in that game, and and that's happened a lot. I think they have changed some things up at that stadium now. It's not as bad as it was then, but it used to, for years, be known for having the worst playing surface in the NFL. And it really was a game that just changed things, that changed the course for both teams, more in the short term for the Seattle Seahawks, and that's what we're going to get to here in a moment. But just to put in perspective the dominance, you said the Seahawks caught fire After that loss of Miami, they win in Chicago in overtime. That was really the game that I think was Russell Wilson's coming-of-age party, leading them back in overtime against an experienced, talented Bears team on the road. And then they just started spanking teams, 58 to nothing at home over the Arizona Cardinals. And the next week, they go north of the border. Doesn't matter. 50 to 17 walloping of the Buffalo Bills. The next week, they serve notice against the division leading 49ers in a 42 to 13 thumping at CenturyLink. And then they wrapped up the year with a close win over the St. Louis Rams. You just knew that was going to happen. I had to include the Rams keeping a game close when they shouldn't have been anywhere close to Seattle, but they did. And the Seahawks finished 11-5 and going into that Redskins game. We talked about the RG3 injury. Now let's get to the injury that I still believe to this day may have cost the Seattle Seahawks a chance at winning the Super Bowl. They were one of the hottest teams in the NFL going into the playoffs. They came back from a deficit in that game against the Redskins. And then early in the third quarter, Chris Clemens on that nasty turf. You mentioned the productivity. Three straight years, averaging around 11 sacks per season. And he pulled up funny with his knee. And he mentioned that it was loose after the game. Wasn't necessarily you know, in pain, but his knee felt loose and ended up tearing his ACL and his meniscus. They lost him, obviously, for the rest of the playoffs. He was their number one pass rusher. And then you've got to play the Atlanta Falcons on the road the next week. And everybody will want to talk about how the Seahawks nearly pulled off a miracle comeback. The thing that always stood out to me, I've, I've looked at the box score so many times over the years. This was not a Falcons team that was known for protecting Matt Ryan well. That was not a great offensive line. They gave up quite a few sacks and quarterback hits that year. The Seahawks got one quarterback hit and no sacks on Matt Ryan in that game. You cannot tell me if Chris Clemens suits up and plays for the Seahawks that he does not have a huge difference on both of those numbers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's you know, I I mentioned Chris Clemens in the in the beginning of of this just because of the fact that that he was easily Seattle's top pass rusher that year. Number two was the rookie Bruce Servin, who you know, give him credit, he had eight sacks as a rookie. Uh, but at the same time, as we talked about, Clemens had eleven and a half. That was basically a third of the thirty six sacks that that Seattle had that year. And as I mentioned again, Bruce Servin was number two with eight, and then you go you drop all the way down uh, to Brandon Mebane with, with three sacks as your nose guard. 
you know, and, and so Seattle's pass rush was absolutely non-existent without Chris Clemens. As you mentioned, Corbin, they had one quarterback hit, and that was from Marcus Trufant on a corner blitz. Um, so they just had no way of getting to Matt Ryan. And, and Matt Ryan, you know, is, is an MVP caliber quarterback in his own right. And, and, and so had the field day. And But to me, what I just remember about that game, while it was, it was tragic to lose Clemens, I absolutely agree with you that that the, taking him away from Seattle just, just really took the air out of the tires for a team that 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 had just been playing so incredibly well Atlanta of course would would wind up losing the San Francisco 49ers the team that was that that Seattle had just spanked in the, the Seahawks had just spanked in Seattle so you knew that you would have had a great deal of confidence going against the 49ers um, so I think that the Seattle absolutely could have been potentially playing for a Super Bowl during Russell Wilson's rookie season uh, so you know, phenom- phenomenal uh, campaign for the Seahawks and obviously it, it changed a lot um, once that once their season went down because now you had that belief that that this young number three w- w- was something special in Seattle and if they could just get a little bit more pass rushers then maybe they might be able to go over the top and of course that's exactly what they did what was crazy about that game was it was I believe 20 nothing at halftime I think Atlanta was up 20 to zip it looked like the Seahawks were completely out of this football game. And then late in regulation, Marshawn Lynch plunges in from the goal line to put him up by one point. And then, of course, the defense couldn't get the pressure, and they were playing kind of a prevent defense with Gus Bradley as the coordinator. And Matt Ryan was able to complete a couple passes, got him in field goal range, and Matt Bryant nails the game winner. So it was all for naught. That incredible comeback, they weren't able to quite finish it off. But I just looked back. You mentioned the sack numbers. We're playing the what-if game here. So my big question, if Chris Clemens does play in that game, he's not injured, and he comes in and he gets to Matt Ryan a time or two, and that ends up shaving some points off the board. The Seahawks win that game. You mentioned the dominance over the 49ers that year. I think the 49ers would have been shaken in their boots if they had the Seahawks come into town for that matchup in the NFC title game. I think Seattle was the better team at that juncture, but... The 49ers were able to beat Atlanta on their home turf at the end of the season. That was at Candlestick Park. This is before they opened the new venue. And San Francisco was able to get that win. Then they played the Ravens, who had kind of just been a team nobody thought was going to have a chance in the playoffs, and yet they got hot and got to the Super Bowl, ended up beating the 49ers. I think the Seahawks matched up well with them as well. This could easily be a situation where Seattle, with a quarterback that is a rookie that has a third-round contract, this team could have won two, three Super Bowls in a row if they were able to win that one. We saw a dominant that they were the next season. Most of those players were going to be under contract I think one thing that they learned from the Clemens injury, though, that did have an impact on their chances to win that next year, you mentioned the sack numbers, Brandon Meebane being third on the list. There was just a huge drop-off after Irvin and Clemens. Clemens came back for the start of the 2013 season, but he was suddenly a backup. He only had four and a half sacks that year. He was still productive at the end of the season, but they signed Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill Looking back at that playoff game and realizing without our top pass rusher, we couldn't get to the quarterback. And so they made that a huge area of emphasis. Who knows if they sign one or both those guys if they actually win the whole thing in 2012. Yeah, exactly. And so that's that's where I think that, uh, you know, again, playing that what if game, 
uh, Clemens injury, while obviously it was, you know, it was huge and, and, and unfortunately it ruined the possibilities of, of Seattle going even further that year. I think that it absolutely was, uh, you know, just kind of the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, as far as Seattle knew that they had to be aggressive uh, in the offseason. You, you mentioned Michael Bennett, who wound up leading the Seahawks in sacks with eight and a half. Cliff Averill was finished with eight sacks himself. Uh, Clinton McDonald five and a half sacks, Bobby Wagner, five sacks, and then Chris Clemens with four and a half sacks. So the guy who had, in Clemens had, who had led your team in sacks a year before when they had 36 total, and he was basically a one-man show with 11 and a half of those. 11 and a half of those. Now he is your fifth uh, most productive pass rusher. They wound up having 44 that sacks that year in the top 10 in the NFL, and their defense was every bit as as good as their offense, obviously. And so that that to me is is really what helped push them over the top, and you could almost feel it. I mean, it just felt like that this was a team that had lost the Atlanta Falcons, but it's kind of like we talked about in 2005 going against the Steelers, that you felt like they were the better team. And with, with so much youth, so much anger, I think that because of the way that the Seahawks lost against the Falcons, then it just kind of set them up for success the next year. And we've heard Pete Carroll each of the last two years reference that 2012 season, looking at their playoff teams in 2018 and 2019. And obviously the parallels are no longer there in a lot of ways when you're looking at the 2019 group, because if you were thinking it was going to be like 2012, the Seahawks probably would have won the Super Bowl this past season, and they only advanced one game further. But there are still some uh, parallels there with this being a team that's pretty young. They've got a lot of new pieces they put around Russell Wilson. So it's always fun to look back at those earlier times in history and be like, hey, could this be the second coming of this? And, And it's interesting that he mentioned that because they still have the issues now with pass rushers. They brought in a couple veteran guys, but they didn't bring back Jadevian Clowney, at least not yet. So we'll just have to wait and see how all this plays out in 2020. But it's really interesting looking back at that first season for Russell Wilson as a rookie could have led that team potentially to a Super Bowl title and just losing one player with the leadership that Clemens brought to the table and obviously his production that proved to be a loss that really was a difference maker in that game against Atlanta going into the third quarter we're going to switch gears looking at the Seahawks depth chart at receiver a lot of familiar faces coming back but as expected they brought in some new faces in free agency and the draft. We're going to look at some of those new faces, where they fit in in Seattle. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. Over the course of the next several weeks, we are going to be looking at different positional groups for the Seahawks. They've got some free agent additions. They've got some draft picks that they brought in. Some undrafted free agents that are going to be vying for a roster spot as well. We're going to look at receivers today, the guys that Russell Wilson's going to be throwing to. And obviously atop the depth chart, Rob, Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf are going to be one of the best one-two punches in the NFC, especially if Metcalf can take another big jump after a really good rookie season with 900 receiving yards, one of the most productive rookies in the NFL last year, Tyler Lockett with his first 1,000-yard season, and he is still in the midst of his prime. He and Russell Wilson have an incredible chemistry out on the field. So with those two guys, they're going to have some really dynamic threats on the outside. Pro Football Reference says they're the seven 
17th best receiving core. I think that's ridiculous with just those two guys there, but they added Philip Dorsett to bring a little bit more speed and kind of the guy that isn't getting talked about enough, in my opinion, had kind of a quiet third season, but they still are high on David Moore. And with the addition of Philip Dorsett, maybe just maybe David Moore is going to be able to return to his 2018 form or even be a little bit better this year. Yeah, I think that's certainly a possibility. I think that that, that 17th receiver ranking is kind of comical. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I just see an awful lot of talent. And to me, what is is really exciting about it, and especially with the two starters and, and Lockett and, and DK Metcalf, is is that they're just so different. And, and so it gives Seattle such a versatile set of pass catchers for Russell Wilson to really take full advantage of. And you, you talked about the rapport that he has with Tyler Lockett. I mean, it's just you have a guy who is a legitimate 4-3 guy who also is as savvy of a route runner as, as there is in the, all of the NFL. And, and you know, for, for a guy who, who is built like he could be blown down from a stiff breeze he's incredibly tough you know and, and so I, I think that there that with Tyler Lockett you have a, a legitimate Pro Bowl kind of kind of a receiver and that he can do just about everything well and then in DK Metcalf you just have just a physical freak I mean a, a guy who who has such an incredible upside to him that that to me that he's in, in some ways I think he's the most exciting player on on Seattle's entire roster and that's that's acknowledging the brilliance that is Russell Wilson, you know, the, the, the future Hall of Famer that, that is Wilson or, or Bobby Wagner or whatever, but DK Metcalf is just a different level and, and yet still just scratching the surface of what he could be. But at the same time, as I mentioned with Tyler Lockett and just how, is how, how thin he is and with DK Metcalf and obviously all the durability issues that were, were a huge part of why he lasted until deep in the you know, 64th overall selection a couple of years ago. You do worry about the durability, and that's why it's critical for Seattle to have a little bit more consistency at the that third, fourth wide receiver spot. So I, I'm really curious to see what Philip Dorsett's going to give you. I, I'm, I'm really curious to see if if Seattle is able to get Josh Gordon back. And then you hit the nail on the head by mentioning David Moore, because to me, he is the guy that can be that third receiver, that guy that can that can catch the ball, take a hit, uh, be able to spin off it, and has enough juice to him to be able to run away from people. So to me, those are your starters and then if you you want to get cute and have your classic slot guy that's where you want to see John Ursua make big strides in the second season in the NFL Ursua has been the player I will say this if you're looking at random players for the Seahawks that fans have tweeted or messaged on social media about this year Obviously, Josh Gordon, I've gotten questions constantly. Is he going to be reinstated? Are they going to re-sign him? The other guy has been John Ursua, which it's kind of ironic that those are the two because if Josh Gordon signed, that might limit John Ursua from seeing the field. But Ursua is a player. If you've seen the pictures going around on social media, he has taken his quarantine during this pandemic very seriously, hitting the weight room. Ursua looks chiseled. And if he's able to come out and really impress on the field this year, I think they were starting to have confidence in him by the end of the regular season. That's why he got that opportunity in Week 17 where he almost caught the game-winning touchdown in the NFC West title game against the 49ers. It feels like they were starting to push towards finding ways to get him on the field. They're still very excited about it, and there's a reason they traded back in the draft to get him. 
but he's going to have to scratch and claw to get in the field, especially if Josh Gordon's brought in, Antonio Brown, if, if that nonsense ends up actually becoming reality, I can't rule it out completely, then somebody like John Ursua is going to have a much tougher time seeing the field. I want to throw a few X factors out there. We've talked a lot about the rookies they brought in. Sixth round pick, Freddie Swain out of Florida. I believe he's going to be in the competition for kick return duties, and he had a solid season as a senior for the Gators, led the team in touchdown receptions with a backup quarterback playing for Florida. So maybe Swain is a guy to keep an eye on there. And of course, Stephon Sullivan, you mentioned DK Metcalf being a physical freak. Stephon Sullivan, if he's going to be playing receiver in the NFL with that 6'6", 250-pound frame, and he can run, that's just another big-bodied guy that Russell Wilson's going to be excited about the opportunity to work with. I think my X factor of this second tier of guys, though, I'm going to throw out this name. Some fans might not know about him. He was on their practice squad at the end of the year last year. Penny Hart, who played at Georgia State, This kid was absolutely electric in the pre-draft process, and he was somebody that I actually mocked to the Seahawks a few times on day three. He's small, 5'8", a really tiny receiver, but he's fast, he's a good route runner, he's tough, and this is a guy that can take the top off defenses occasionally. The Seahawks liked him enough that they've kept him around on the roster after spending the end of the year in the practice squad, and he actually was drawing some comparisons in the draft process from some scouts as being a Doug Baldwin style player because he's a savvy route runner he's the kind of guy the Seahawks like because the toughness he brings to the table that would maybe be the one guy here that fans might not know about that maybe you should pay a little attention to before we get to the start of the 2020 training camp yeah, I agree with you. Uh, you know, Penny Hart to me is is your primary backup at this spot or at this point to John Ursua as that nickel guy, uh, or excuse me, as, the, as that slot receiver, um, just because he does have that that elite uh, change of direction quickness. Um, he, he has some straight line speed to him. Um, you mentioned that he was was a was a um, you know was a really popular player in in the pre-draft process and he was i i watched him uh, at the senior bowl and saw just uh I, I really thought that he was one of the one of the, the fastest rising guys unfortunately he wound up not being drafted it was one of the kind of the, the shocking developments but again talking about a receiver who's five eight but he has stuck around in the nfl um not only in seattle but all was with the indianapolis colts for some time as well um and, and so i am intrigued by by penny hart but Again, I, I think that he is a backup at this point, Corbett. And so I'm going to focus in on another guy who I think is going to be a backup. But I also think, uh, you know, is, is very important to what Seattle likes to do. And that being Sullivan, you, you mentioned it before. He, he's a guy that at 6'6", 245 pounds is what Seattle's officially listing him on their website. He just has the size that no other receiver on, on Seattle's roster has other than DK Metcalf obviously he's even bigger than than Metcalf and I I think that that's important just because again the the durability issues that we've talked about with Metcalf that the fact that that Russell Wilson is such a brilliant deep ball thrower when you have these big tall receivers and I think that this is part of the plan with the tight end Kobe Parkinson as well but get them get your quarterback these big tall receivers because you're the only you know uh, team in the in the league apparently that that wants to continue to draft and, and and develop these longer corners and so take full advantage of that and I think that's exactly what what Sullivan gives the Seahawks an opportunity to do now let's talk undrafted players just for a moment because obviously all the guys we just mentioned there 
Hart, Swain, Sullivan. Hart was undrafted by the Colts, but he's been with the team. They're familiar with him, and Swain and Sullivan were draft picks back in April. They added a couple guys that are kind of intriguing in the undrafted ranks, and one of them was a local kid, Aaron Fuller out of Washington, a player that the film that I've watched was kind of hit and miss for the Huskies, but they had hit and miss quarterback play during his career as well, and so that certainly impacted his production. A guy that can play on special teams as well. And Seth Dawkins from Louisville, another player that had a very good season the last year Lamar Jackson was at Louisville, and then they've had a major drop-off in quarterback play too, and his production suffered as a result. But both of these guys have, in the case of Dawkins, has good size. Aaron Fuller has the special teams aspect working for him, and the Seahawks have a history of uncovering solid undrafted rookie receivers. So while I think this year especially, it's going to be very difficult for either one of those players to make this football team. I could see one of them potentially being a practice squad guy they can develop that maybe makes an impact down the road for this football team. I think so. I think that is a possibility. I think that it is for for Hearts and Sullivan's we talked about before as well. Um, Dawkins, to me, of of the two that you just mentioned, Dawkins uh, is the more intriguing. 6'3", 218 pounds, as we talked about before. Seattle doesn't have a lot of big receivers um, otherwise. So I really think that that this could be Dawkins versus Sullivan um, as far as if you're looking for a a, a Seahawks uh, rookie wide receiver. Um, to be able to kind of stash in the late part part of, of Seattle's depth chart, the receiver position, or in the practice squad. And then watch out for Cody Thompson as well. Seattle brought him back. Um, he was a practice squad guy a year ago, and he was a really, really productive guy in college as well at Toledo. Um, and he also has good size, 6'2", 210. So, so Seattle does have some size, and that, that's some of the guys who I think are going to be very much fighting and scratching for those last spots. Looking at the depth chart as a whole, this would be my argument. I think they are in a better position right now than they were most of last year as a whole with this depth chart because Philip Dorsett is a nice veteran addition for a pretty cheap price, under $900,000 for 2020. is going to be coming into his second season. I mentioned Penny Hart being a kind of a dark horse that's worth watching. And then you added a couple intriguing players in the draft to get a couple undrafted free agents that look like maybe they could be guys that stick around for a little bit. So this is a group that I think overall is better. That being said, Would throwing Josh Gordon in there make it a better group? Absolutely. Some of the other veteran receivers that have been linked to them out there as well, there's always room for improvement. But I think overall, this group is better than the one that we saw for Russell Wilson last year. And having extra tight ends like Greg Olson and Parkinson coming in to take even more pressure off those receivers, if they can just keep this group healthy, Russell Wilson should have plenty of weapons at his disposal to put up monster numbers once again in 2020. He should. I know. To me, it's very much like what we were talking about before, the defensive end position with with, with Chris Clements and how he was so clearly Seattle's number one guy. Uh, and then when he got hurt, then, then Seattle was really struggling. I mean, they had Bruce Servin was the only only other proven pass rusher on that 2012 team. And then the next year in 2013 when Seattle won the Super Bowl is when they had a a lot more versatility, a lot more uh, guys who could get the job done. That to me is what we're seeing at the wide receiver position. At this point a year ago, it was Tyler Lockett and we weren't sure what else was going to happen at at that secondary uh, pass catcher position. Was it going to be Will Disley? Was it going to be DK Metcalf going to live up to all the hype? What was going to happen? Now you feel confident that you have a number of proven pass catchers, and so possibly this could be the year that Russell Wilson explodes. 
Make sure to follow me on Twitter at CorbinSmithNFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is by going to our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up on our Wednesday show, we're going to look back at how Seattle stole a Hall of Famer basically for a bag of peanuts and how things might have played out if they didn't make that trade. Plus, we're going to go back to the defensive side of the football and we are going to take a look at the safety group. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks!